0: Lord, we ask you to open our ears and eyes. We want to hear you. We want to see you. We are your disciples. 2,000 years makes no difference whatsoever. We follow you as much as Peter and Andrew, James, and John. Your words to them are your words to us. Your call to them is your call to us. We are your people. We ask you to let us see you. Let us hear you. Let us walk by the lake today and listen to you talk to Peter. Let that go deep in our hearts. Lord, you are, you are just and righteous. You are good and fair in all that you do. But you have created us, and you have a path for each of us. Help us embrace that path. Help us embrace our discipleship and move forward in it. We ask for that, and Lord, I ask for, the, for, the, for your hand, your grace upon me, to just get out of the way and let us watch you and listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus had told his disciples uh, to meet him in Galilee after, after the resurrection. He actually said that before he was crucified. But, he, but he, the angels did and he did. Afterwards, he says, wait for me in Galilee. So they did. They went up and they waited. And apparently he didn't show up right away. Uh, and so... At one point, Peter uh, said to several of them, I'm going fishing. Uh, they needed to make some money. I mean, they, he's got a family. He's got a wife. We know he's got a wife and undoubtedly has children. And so he's got to support his family. And so did they. And so seven of them went fishing with Peter. They went out there on the, on the, on the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, and uh, fished all night. We talked about how they did that. They used uh, what we think a, a trammel net, uh, this two-sided net with a, with a gill net in the middle. Uh, and they'd caught nothing all night. And then as the first light of dawn began to break, the, they saw a, a man standing off the shore. Their boat was about a hundred yards off the shore. Uh, my guess is they are there on the north shore of the, of the, of the lake. There's actually a place at uh, a place called Tagba, where there's warm water that comes out, and there's a, there's a lot of fishing right there. And they may well have been right off that, that shore. And uh, they they see a man standing on the shore. And the man calls out to them. And he says, boys, you don't have any food, do you? That's what he said. He didn't say fish. Uh, He said, do you have any food? (laughs) And that was their condition. And uh, they, uh, I I would think, you know, if you're a good fisherman, you muttered no. And then he said, throw it on the right side of the boat. Uh, And they did. And no sooner did they do that than the thing took on 153 large tilapia. Uh, and, and how do I know it's tilapia? There's two kinds of fish you can eat in that lake. Uh, the, the Jews can eat in that lake. Uh, there's tilapia and there's sardines. And you don't call sardines large. So And, and it talks about large. So, yeah, a large sardine, yeah, yeah. So... These are the tilapia, and he's got 153. And, and, as, and as John and Peter and everybody are pulling on, the, on, the, on this net, it's a long thing, about 100 yards long, it can be, or 100 feet long, excuse me. And uh, so they're pulling this thing in, you can feel the weight of it. John says to Peter, It's the Lord. Peter looks up and, and realizes he, has, he is basically in a swimming suit uh, because someone has to dive in and Pull the net, the end of the net. There's there's work that's done in the water. And he's the guy, obviously, doing it at this point. He's also one of the best fishermen there. So he wraps himself in a coat and dives in out of modesty. He swims with his coat to the shore uh, to to be with Jesus as quickly as possible. The other ones row this 153 fish in toward shore, leaving the net out in the water. So they're keeping the, the fish alive. And uh, they get there, and there's a fire on the beach, and Jesus has a, a fish roasting, probably a tilapia, probably stuck on a stick, you know, uh, roasting over the, uh, what is already charcoal. So it's already a hot charcoal fire. Uh, they come, and he says, uh, bring more fish. So Peter goes back to the net. He gets probably, I would guess, because those things are pretty good size, uh, he, he gets uh, seven or eight fish and brings them back. And Jesus then, this is the amazing thing, the, the, the resurrected Son of God cooks breakfast for them. Uh, talk about showing his character, showing his heart, showing his, his servant heart. You See, this is the thing about our God we hardly understand. He is also humble. How can you be the one who spoke the universe into existence and, and has the, the power and the knowledge he has and be humble? But he is. He is. He's, he's good at beyond. A, this is what, we, every time you and I say, uh, Lord, uh, may hallowed be thy name. May, may your name be honored as holy. We're, we're saying, we're talking about that. The greatness, the love, the purity, the, the, the wonder of our God's character. That's what we're saying. Lord, may, may the world see who you are, the holy, wonderful person you are. And so... Uh, here he is cooking them breakfast, and then he he has bread also there, and and he serves them the bread and the fish. And after they're finished with breakfast, he says to Peter, come on, walk with me. And and the two of them begin to walk down the beach, and John follows. He wants to listen. So John is just basically trailing along behind the two of them. And Jesus begins to deal with Peter in in healing the, the injuries of the denials. You remember the three denials? He had denied his Lord three times. Uh, he had, uh, uh, those, were, those, were, those were violent denials. I mean, he, he really went for it. If you get into the Greek and all, it was not a just like, no, I don't know the guy. He, he, had, he had vehemently denied the Lord in the face of these things. And he was, he, Jesus, I think, had already forgiven him. He'd already had a private appointment with him. But he, uh, Peter's injured. Peter's whole, uh, he's ashamed And that's going to hold him back. He's not going to be the uh, apostle he needs to be when you're full of shame. You you just aren't going to go anywhere. None of us are. We saw how the Lord healed the damage of those denials and restored Peter. He he, he restored him, and then he gave him a fresh assignment each time. Remember those assignments? Uh, Feed my little lambs. Shepherd my little sheep. Feed my little sheep. That's, that's the things that it actually says. Each time, he's told to care for God's people. Care for God's people. So he's given reassignment. And then Jesus does something that's really shocking. He tells Peter how he's going to die. He tells him he's going to be crucified. And it stuns Peter. And he reacts poorly. Lord, open the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in John chapter 21. We'll look at verse 18. So he's had the, we've, we've had the Lord say to him, do you love me three times? Peter said, yes, I love you uh, uh, in his own way three times. And then it says in verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, You will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And he said, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Would you say, follow me? me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one on whom, he, the one, pardon me, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Just notice what a long sort of uh, uh, extended de- description of John is there. Why is all that there? I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's there. So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Say, You follow me. me. Is God fair? No two people are alike. God designed us that way. He loves variety. There aren't two snowflakes or blades of grass or grains of sand that are alike. No two people have the same fingerprints, let alone the same personality. Ha- haven't you noticed that? Anyone who's been a parent or, or, or even an aunt or uncle, if, you, th- you think, okay, when I raise my children, they're all going to be like this. Yeah, well, good luck with that. They will all come out with their own personalities. They will all be wildly different. You wonder, how on earth did you all come out of the same family, you know? They'll be different, and, and you as a parent have some influence, uh, but that's all it is. They are designed and, and formed and made with their own personality and their own being. It's a, it's a unique thing. God does that. We are fearfully and wonderfully formed in, in, the, in our mother's womb. And, and David, when he, when he wrote that psalm, David is reflecting on the fact that he is, he is uh, going to be the king. He, he, well, he is at the king the king now. And he says, somehow, God, you knew I was going to be the king of Israel when you formed me in my mother's womb. And you knit me and gave me the capacities that I need to do this job. You knew that long before I was even birthed. You knew what I was going to be. Now that truth is true for you and me as well. God designed you. He, he knit you in his mother in your mother's womb for the calling that he has on your life. This has nothing to do with whether, you're, whether you think you're good-looking or bad-looking. This has nothing to do with those kinds of things. It's not talking about that at all. It's talking about your capacity, your spiritual capacity, your gifting to be who you're supposed to be. Which, by the way, is an, if that's true, let's suppose it's true. <laughs> that God actually did knit you in your mother's womb for the calling that's on your life. When you line your life up with that, you are really good. Do you see it? You are good because you are literally created to do that. When you turn your life and go another way that's not the calling of God, you're on your own. And it's just plain old you. You're not nearly as effective as when you're lining your life up. This is the key to success. You and I need to find out how God's made us and what he's called us to do. And when we line our life with that, there's a whole new energy to it. Here's an example of this. If I, if you said, Steve, sign your name, I'm right handed. So I take a pen, boom, I've, I've just a uh, flourish there. It's <laughs> my name, look at that. Now you say, change it to the other hand. Oh boy. Now, I'm, I mean, I can do it, but it's going to take me a long time. It's going to be ugly, you know, and, and it's going to take a lot more work. That's, right. That's what it's like when you're out of your calling and gifting you're left you're, you're you're the opposite handed whichever that is for you you see that when you're in when you're in what god made you to be there's a fluidity to it an ease to it there's an a, there's a, just a grace to it because he's made you to do that that's what david's reflecting on he says you designed me so i could do this you're awesome and he's designed us as well all right everything but but those differences uh, everything about us is different, including the path he has planned for our lives. But those differences have nothing to do with favoritism. Everything God does, which is not the same as everything that happens. Let me emphasize that. Uh, it, it is not the same as everything that happens. That's fatalism. That's, a, that's like, well, uh, you, you know, if you, if you, it seems like professional athletes right now have three things they always say. One is they may say, I give glory to God. Hallelujah. The other is, I think everything happens for a reason. And the other is, I gotta believe in myself. Those are the three things. No matter if put a mic in front of them, they're gonna say one of those three things. Everything does not happen at least for a good reason. There is a devil and there is sin. And there are things that happen that are not at all God's will in, in this world. And so you cannot just ascribe everything that you see and say, well, that's God, see, he's in charge. Uh, you, you create a, you create a, a horrible uh, picture when, when, that, when you do that. Everything God does, which is not just the same as everything that happens, is just and fair and flows out of his perfect love. He has designed a different plan for each person's life, not because he loves one and not the other, but because he understands the unique way he formed each person to serve him. So those who compare themselves to someone else and make judgments about God based on the differences they see will always be misled. They will conclude that God is unfair. When you begin to compare yourself, when you look around and say, I'm not like that, I'm not like her, I'm not like him, and I, I, I can't do... If you begin to do that, you will always conclude... Sooner or later, that, that God likes other people a lot better than you and, and sort of left you out of the equation. You were the end of the line, you know. There just wasn't much left when they got to you. Uh, it's surprising that John, at the very end of his gospel, would give us such deep insights into Peter's heart. Isn't that interesting? I mean, you he could have closed his gospel at the resurrection, you know. But he puts this chapter in. He wants us to hear this. Clearly, there were lessons in the way Jesus ministered to Peter that John wants us to learn. First, he lets us listen as Jesus removed the shame that had gripped Peter as a result of his three denials in the high priest's courtyard. And now, in, these, in the verses we're studying today, he lets us listen to the conversation that took place when Jesus told Peter how he would die. We hear the prophecy... And then we watch Peter struggle to accept it. What Jesus said frightened him, and I think he reacted by becoming defensive. He assumed that the martyrdom Jesus foretold was a form of punishment. But that, was, that what was being asked of him was unfair. That he was going to be subjected to a level of suffering that the others, especially John, were not. It appears that Peter worried that Jesus loved John more than he loved him. So he asked Jesus how John would die. Not out of innocent curiosity, but because he wondered if Jesus was being fair. It's no surprise then that Jesus didn't answer that question. Instead, he spoke to the suspicion that caused the question. Basically, he asked Peter, don't you trust me? Because if Peter did trust Jesus, then he needed to stop comparing himself to John. And let his Lord lead him down the path that had been prepared for him. And if you and I trust him, we will too. Peter has said to the Lord, after the Lord said the third time, uh, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know all things. Uh, you, You have prophesied that I would deny you. You told me when I'd do it and what time I'd do it. And then he says, indeed, Jesus did see genuine love in Peter's heart. So after carefully restoring him from the damage he had done to himself by those three denials, Jesus prophetically assured him that he would never deny him again. In fact, he told him he would glorify God by dying a martyr's death in old age. This is actually honorable, isn't it? Peter's denied three times, and Jesus says, well, you won't do it again you'll go the rest of your life till you're an old man and you will not even you'll not deny me they'll put you, they're going to crucify you like like they did me and you will not deny me so that's an honorable thing jesus is telling him i don't think peter takes it quite that way he said to peter truly truly i say to you when you were younger now here's here's my translation you wrapped yourself tucked and, and that word wrapped is, is used. I mean, I, I, I check this all out through the Old Testament and all. This is used uh, when it's talking about uh, what gird your loins. Do you know that phrase? It means uh, the, the, they have these robes, and men can't run or, or, or walk long distance without get that all tangled up and that stuff. So he, you grab the back end and you tuck it in your belt. Makes these big pantaloons kind of thing, uh, but it's out of your way. So that he says. So when you were younger. You wrapped or tucked the edge of your robe into your belt and walked wherever you wished to go. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and another person will wrap cords around you. That's the word, is wrap. Cords around you and carry you where you don't want to go. He appears to be contrasting the years of freedom to, to travel that Peter would have as an apostle with the final scene of his life in which he would be bound and carried into an arena in Rome to be crucified. According to Eusebius of Caesarea, Caesarea, the earliest church historian, Peter was crucified in Rome during the vicious persecution of Christians conducted by the emperor Nero. Nero uh, was obviously a a terrible man. He'd murdered his his wife, he murdered his mother. I mean, he just—you know—he just. Yeah, you know, he, he, uh, he was a vicious man. And a, and a fire in sixty—the July of of sixty-four A.D. sixty-four, I think it was. Uh, the fire broke out in Rome. It's just, uh, how it came, no one knew, and it burned. I think, if I recall, something like ten out of fourteen wards of the of the city. It just it just ravished the city, and uh, Nero then claimed a bunch of that land that, of, the, of the houses you know, that were gone now and put a park and put a palace area for himself in it. And so the word went out through, through Rome. Nero did that. He started that fire so he could get the land. And it really, be, you know, you can imagine the, 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 the anger that's rising in the city. And so to protect himself, I guess he, had, he really had sat on his balcony while the fire was going and played his lute and recited poetry. So he wasn't alarmed, shall we say. And uh, so, so he's, he, his way of defending himself is say I didn't do it. The Christians did it. And so in order to show his fury against the Christians who had burned down Rome, uh, he, he began to do the horrible things to them. There's a, there's a movie out right now called The Apostle Paul. Or something. I haven't seen it, but I've seen some clips from it. And I could just tell from some of the clips. They're showing you some of the things he did. And I'm not going to describe it. It's just awful. Uh, but that that persecution broke out then about the middle of, of, of 64 and it ran through till uh 67 that's when it, it, things got so bad for Nero uh he was persecuting and all but but it got so bad that he left Italy and he went to Greece <laughs> and he gets in a anyway never mind he's an idiot uh uh, he gets in a play, he, you know, he thinks, he's a, he thinks he's an artist. And so he's on the stage reciting stuff and all. And then he gets all enthusiastic and releases Greece from their obligations to Rome. And finally, in 68, he had one of his loyal servants kill him. And he committed suicide. So right in that period is when Paul, uh, his head was cut off, and it's when Peter dies. In fact, if you read First and Second Peter, those letters are written in Rome by Peter, uh, as that, as that, that whole thing is happening. Uh, remember where Peter says, uh, don't be alarmed at the fiery trials that are among you? Yeah, he, they are too. I mean, he's not kidding. This is a horrible thing that goes on. Well, they get a hold of Peter. And Peter is crucified upside down, apparently. It's what the historians tell us. He was crucified upside down after watching his wife crucified. And he cried out to her as, as she was being crucified. You know, he carries her name. Uh, uh, if, was it Tertullian? I don't remember. Eusebius. He cried out her name and, and said, Remember Christ. Remember Christ. And then they turned him upside down and he was crucified. This is in the Roman Circus, uh, which, by the way, if, it would be roughly right there at St. Peter's Square right, uh, today. And there is a painfully vivid way. Uh, quality to the way jesus described what would happen to peter he said you will stretch out your hands and another person will wrap cords around you and carry you where you don't want to go these words seem to recall the moment when his own hands were stretched out and tied to the crossbeam that he would he would be forced to carry to the place of his crucifixion they also seem to recall the sensation of that cross being lifted up and placed on an upright post they capture the feeling of helplessness that a victim would experience in that form of execution in other words jesus was telling peter you are going to experience what i did you are going they are going to do to you what they did to me by the time john wrote this gospel peter was already dead and his death had fulfilled that prophecy John does not want his readers to miss that fact, so he adds this explanation. Now this, he said, signifying by what death he would glorify God. So Peter probably died about AD 67. Peter's faithfulness had brought glory to God. He'd accepted death on a cross rather than deny his Lord again. He had made that painful decision to which Jesus was pointing when he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. That day by the lake, he, Jesus placed that call in front of Peter again. And he said, follow me. And after, that, after the prophecy he had just received, Peter would have understood that he was being called to follow Jesus. Even though that path would lead him to a violent death. If you knew that your Christianity was going to end up causing you to be, to be martyred, would you stay one? You see the, you see the pressure? I mean, if you really knew, I mean, the Lord says, this is where you'll end up. You follow me, and this will happen to you at the end. Would you go, hmm? I mean, it, it, you, it, it, really, it really makes you think. It must have been hard for Peter to hear the prophetic words he was hearing. He was being told that his life would end in the horror of crucifixion. And though he was being assured that he would be faithful to the end, that was a painful prospect. Almost certainly when Jesus spoke those words, he turned to look him in the eye. So it would be no surprise if Peter had felt a surge of emotion and looked away. John says at that moment he turned around and saw that he, John, was following them. And then he tells us that Peter asked Jesus a very strange question. He asked, Lord, what about this one? Meaning, what will happen to John? It's possible to assume that Peter was merely curious about his friend's future But I think the way John describes himself here uh, indicates that there was more behind Peter's question than simple curiosity. John says that what Peter saw when he looked behind him was, quote, The disciple whom Jesus loved, who also leaned back in the Passover supper upon the breast of him, Jesus, and said, Lord, who is the one betraying you? At that final Passover meal, John had sat next to Jesus at his right side. That was the place of highest honor. And if Jesus placed him there, it may have meant that he thought of him as more spiritually mature than the others. And sadly, those men cared about such things. They had spent time discussing among themselves which one of them was the greatest. And to make the situation even more difficult, John's mother had tried to arrange for her sons, James and John, to be given the most powerful positions in Jesus' future kingdom. Remember this? John's mother is Jesus' aunt. Salome is Mary's sister. And so Salome shows up with James and John and basically says to Jesus, your cousins should be at your, on either hand. You should put them on your left and your right. These should be your, 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 your generals. It should be the, the main people in your kingdom. I mean, that, that went well, I'm sure, with everybody because they all saw it. It was in front of people. Yeah. So there may have been an element of jealousy in Peter's question. If Jesus was going to allow him to be martyred, Was John going to be martyred too? Or would Jesus, pardon me, would John be spared a violent death or maybe not die at all, but remain alive until the Lord's return? Jesus quickly put an end to Peter's foolish question. He bluntly told him, if I wish him to remain while I am coming, that's actually what it says. What is that to you? You follow me. He didn't say John wouldn't die. He didn't say John would still be alive at his second coming. He simply told Peter that what would happen to John was none of his business. He needed to concern himself with living out his own assignment. If indeed Peter's question was asked out of jealousy, the most troubling part of his question was that it indicated that he suspected Jesus of favoritism. It wouldn't mean that he was worried that he was going to be martyred because Jesus didn't love and value him as much as he loved and valued John. But of course, that assumption is completely wrong. Jesus does not have favorites. And as time went on, circumstances proved how wrong that fear was. It would be Peter, listen to this, not John, who would become the most recognized leader of the early church. And based on what we read in the book of Acts, it would be Peter who would lead in performing some of the most powerful miracles. So favoritism had nothing to do with John living long and Peter dying as a martyr. Would you check? favoritism if you want to say who's who's the favorite Peter look Peter actually raised a woman back to life who was dead for at least nine hours I mean in a warm climate that is just stunning he he remember this Tabitha he goes and she's been, he, the messenger, she dies. A messenger's sent all these miles. Heard, and then he, then he walks back and everything else. He's about, it's got to be nine hours, I'll calculate, for him to, for the message to have come and him to go back all there. And he comes to this dead body and he says, Tabitha, arise. That's Peter. It's hard, hardly the Lord doesn't love him. <laughs> I mean, this guy's got power. This guy, is the, he's really the, the leader of the early church. He, he's, he's the one who, 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 who gave us, uh, the, we Gentiles, uh, real permission to belong to the kingdom of God there in, Corn, in, in Cornelius' household. The church father named Tertullian tells us that the apostle John, after suffering no hurt from being plunged into boiling oil by the emperor Domitian, was remitted to his island exile, the island of Patmos. The way the, the, the history reads, uh, John suddenly had a soldier, a Roman soldier, show up at his home in, uh, in, in, in Ephesus. He was the pastor of the church in Ephesus at this point. And the Roman soldier just seized him, and uh, he was taken to a, a ship, put in chains, and taken to Rome. And he was he was he came before Domitian who was a who was a wicked evil uh, emperor, and he came before Domitian and D- Domitian ordered him uh, boiled in oil, so they heat this pot of oil, and they put him in it, and Domitian was watching and 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 he he did not boil. Uh, now that didn't stop Domitian, so Domitian says then exile him, and so he sent to an an abandoned island in the Greek Isles and dumped on the shore, uh, Patmos. So John did not escape the horrors of martyrdom. Look, he didn't boil, that's cool. But he's still going to need therapy. (coughs) You you see where I'm going? I mean, uh, you got that in your memory bank uh, of being hauled to this boiling cauldron and, and, and dumped in it all of the trauma is there he just didn't boil and so there's a glorious part to it but it's not like you missed out on something he simply didn't die in the attempt he, and, and and was then exiled to a prison island where listen to this because he had been miraculously delivered from the boiling oil he wrote the book of revelation and he went glad he didn't boil you see, the, it, there's a plan for him. There's a purpose for him. You remember Peter was actually delivered miraculously as well. He was in prison and an angel shows up. The gates open, the whole thing. So Peter had his deliverance, but then he had his moment when the Lord says now. But it wasn't, But John he was to be preserved. Why? Well, one, he's got to write the book of Revelation. And it's not that Peter would die a martyr's death and John would have an easy life to the end. Both men would serve the Lord powerfully as long as they lived, bravely endure persecution, and die gloriously. One on a cross in Rome and the other in his old age in Ephesus. Peter's jealousy was so distorted and insulting to Jesus that there wasn't time uh, there by the lake for Jesus to work through all the issues to correct it. He replied to Peter's question by telling him to quit comparing himself to others and focus on his own assignment. He reminded him of a call... To discipleship, which he had said, yes, to which he had said yes years earlier, and then brought that awkward conversation to an end. Is God fair? That's an important question. Is God fair? Does he treat everyone the same way? Does he use the same standard when he judges one person as he does another? And ultimately, the heart of that question is this: Does God have favorites? Does he love and value certain people more than others? Does he want to protect, provide, heal, guide, comfort, and use in his service one person more than another? The reason we humans always ask that question is because in our old nature, we aren't fair and we don't love and value everyone the same. In fact, we're not even capable of doing that. So naturally, we project our own limitations on God. It's hard for us to even conceive of someone who would be so unlike us. Someone who could be completely fair and impartial. But the Bible very clearly states that God is fair and impartial. It says his love is perfect and his judgment is just. Now, I'm going to pound this subject for a minute. You see all those scripture references? I'm going through all of them. Uh, I, I I want it drilled into our hearts. Yours and mine. Our God is a just God. He is, a, he is fair because the, the, the devil constantly wants to say he's not fair. The devil constantly wants to plant in our heart a thought. Well, he likes that person. He doesn't like me. He's treated me this way. He's let this happen to me and not to them. You know, that, that is just raw ground for the devil. So listen, listen to this. We'll, we're going to go right to the Torah because that's the foundation of everything. Uh, here's Leviticus. When a stranger resides with you in your land... You shall not do him wrong. Uh, who is what, what, he talking about? A stranger, in other words, non-Jew. When you have a foreigner who's come into your land, you shall not do him wrong. You, uh, the stranger who resides with you, you shall be shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. Come on. And you shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight or capacity. You shall have just balances. Just weights, a just ephah, that's a basket that would hold 5.8 gallons, and a just hin that's a one-gallon basket. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I love that line. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God. I'm like that, you're to be like that. Because that's what this is all about. If I'm to dwell with you, you become like me. If I'm going to be among you and and I'll be your God and you'll be my people, you become like me. And this is who I am. So this is who you are. Deuteronomy. You shall appoint for yourselves judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you. And they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. Say that. You shall not be partial. The word partial is two words in Hebrew. It means you shall not look at faces. In other words, if we've got an issue on the table here, we're trying to decide what's right and wrong, you don't look up and see who it is. You simply focus on the issue. You make a, just, you, you make a judgment based on the facts, not on who's involved. You see it? That's what he's saying. You shall, and you shall not take a bribe. Justice and only justice shall you pursue that you may live and possess the land to which the Lord is giving you. Deuteronomy again. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality. See it? Does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien. So for the weak and disempowered, for the foreigner who has no, no standing, for you were aliens he says to them in the land of egypt second chronicles this is king jehoshaphat when he was setting up appointing judges in the land he says now let them now then let the fear of the lord be upon you be very careful what you do for the lord our god will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or in the taking of a bribe proverbs 20:10 differing weights and differing measures both of them are, an, are abominable to the Lord. Acts, this is Peter talking uh, to at, at, uh, the, the Romans there in Caesarea after they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's a huge statement. And then James, the Lord's half brother, warning Christians, he says, He says, when you have rich people come into your church services, you're giving them an f- honorable place. You have a poor man come in, you say, Sit over there. He says, God hates that stuff. He says, God hates that. He says, It's wicked. He says, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and, by, and convicted by the law as transgressors. Different paths. Here's an important distinction. The Bible doesn't say that God has the same plan for everyone. It says he is just toward everyone. Did you follow the distinction? The way he's planned your life, the way he's planned my life, is going to be, what, is going to be very different. The way he's designed you, and what he's designed you to do, and what he's designed me to do, etc. It's all going to be different. But he will t- treat each one of us justly. He will do what's right. His, mo- his attitude, his motives, his love is the same for all. But that doesn't mean he treats everyone the same way. He does what's right for each person. If we could see our lives as God sees them, and if our heart were as pure as his, I believe we would choose for ourselves the plan that God has designed for us. But the problem lies in the fact that we can neither see as he sees, nor is our mind, even though he has given us a new heart, free from corrupt influences. So you and I may find ourselves questioning why God did something good for one person and not for another, or allowed a trial to come into one life but not another. And if we allow the suspicion to remain in our thoughts that God is unfair, we can become bitter toward him, believing that he has withheld something we needed, or we can become proud that that our circumstances are better than someone else's. In other words, that's an attitude of favoritism. When Jesus said the words, follow me, to Peter, he was reminding him that he had said yes to that call years earlier. It was beside that same lake that Jesus had said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And then when he had appointed Peter as one of the 12 who would travel and minister with him, he had warned him, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me Is not worthy of me. Why don't you read that out loud with me? And he who does not take up his cross, follow me. Peter, when he signed on as an as a disciple, had said yes to that. So there we are. Peter's Peter Peter's Peter's staggering right now. Jesus says, This is how you're gonna end. It's glorious. (laughs) Peter's going, not so good. Thank you. And then he turns and says, what about him? Jesus says, none of your business. He says, but you. And then he says those words, and he says them to him twice. I mean, he knows, he he, he says, didn't we agree you would follow me? Didn't we agree you would take up your cross and follow me? Why is this a surprise to you? Are you backing out? You said yes to it once. Are you backing out now? So he was challenging him to decide. Those were the terms of their original agreement. Now that he knew where his discipleship would lead, was he still committed to it? Not everyone who follows Jesus dies a martyr's death. But every true disciple will find that following Jesus leads to a very real and painful surrender. Did you hear that? I'm going to say it again. You know, look... Christianity is being marketed in America as simply a, a great way to get stuff. God will do this for you. He'll do this for you. Here's how you do it. Here's how you pray it. Send me a thousand bucks and he'll give you, t- you know, more and all of that kind of thing. It's been turned into a coarse market. God is our provider. He is our protector, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But he's our Lord. And we've become disciples of Jesus Christ. This is what real Christianity is. And when I say yes to that, I basically sign on to live for him the rest of my life. I follow him in whatever path of life he's ordered for me. I will, in my heart, I'm his. And what I do and decisions I make and the, and the way I, I lead and conduct my life is, is, is as an act of worship and an act of obedience to him. That is how I live my life. I'm a disciple of his. I signed on to this. So everyone who, we we won't all die martyrs' deaths, but we all will, if we follow him, it'll lead to a very real and painful surrender. He will lead us to a place where we will die to our own ambitions and live for him. We will spend a lifetime saying no to wrong impulses from our flesh and temptations from the enemy. That in itself is a cross. We will give more generously than we ever thought we would, could give. We will serve longer and more selflessly than we ever thought we, would, we could serve. And we will suffer rejection, ridicule, and maybe even harsh treatment at the hands of those who are hostile to God. The persecution Peter and John suffered was more intense than most of us are likely to experience. They were the first witnesses carrying a new faith into a dangerous world. But the path they chose that led both men to suffer for their Lord is the same path. Jesus calls us to walk. He turns to those who would be his disciples and says the same words. Follow me. Each of us will be given a different assignment. One assignment might look easier than another. But in truth, it won't be. Look, you may look around and say, oh, well, I've got it hard, but they've got it easy. I've been a pastor a long time. And what I've learned is behind each life, there's pain. Everybody's got their own issues. Everybody's got their own challenges. And, and, and some people who look like they got it all together in, in the quiet of their life are, are, are dealing with some very, very painful, very ugly issues. And they're walking out their discipleship. You cannot judge somebody by the by the surface. And it isn't just isn't for us to do. You can't look around and say, I've got it hard and they've got it easy or or or, or any of those kinds of things. Each of us has our own walk. Their assignment might look easier than one assignment might look, but in truth, it won't be. It will will just be different. Why? Because God is fair. He has no favorites. He loves and values all of us equally. There are a few questions we can ask ourselves that will expose whether or not we believe God is fair. Here's one. Have I learned to be grateful for the way God made me and where he has led me? Or do I find myself constantly comparing myself to others? If you and I find ourselves constantly comparing, and this is, this is, by the way, one of the things that just cripples pastors. It is just a miserable part of pastoring because you look at somebody and they're, 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 their church is doing well or, that, or, or this ministry is doing well and, and you're struggling. You think, God, why don't you love me? Why do you you know and you and you you hate me, don't you? You know, and and you you just go through all kinds of agony on this. Number two, when something good happens to someone else, am I glad or do I feel jealous and wonder why God loves them more than me? Can Jesus ask me to do something? Number three, can he ask me to do something difficult without me becoming angry at him? Number four. Can he ask me to do more than those around me are doing without me feeling sorry for myself? Well, how come you don't ask them to do this? I mean, how come I'm the one that's got to go work with the kids? (laughs) Ah, I have more to say on that. Do I feel he asks me to do things he wouldn't ask those he really values to do? Has he asked you to, you know, I, I, I just mentioned children. I've had people say this. I've, I've, I've asked people at times, would you, would you lead a ministry with, with this? And I can think of one person who says, no, I'm, I'm just not called to children. But that person wanted uh, me to give them position in other areas. And my thought, frankly, if you, won't, if you don't see the value of children, why would I turn you loose on adults? <laughs> to be quite honest with you. If you don't either get it, that these are human beings, in fact, with whole lives in front of them. If, see, you can tell how a person feels about everybody by the way they treat the weakest. The way a person treats children, even animals, the way they treat the weak or the poor, those who can give them nothing, those who can do nothing back for them. The way they treat them is the way they really feel about everybody. But they simply have to. They're they're nice to some to get something, so it's a quid pro quo thing we go into. I'll be really nice to these because they'll give me money, or I need I need the I need their influence. I need their I need whatever it is. I'll, I'll do. So you can tell how when people treat the poor, when they people treat those who are, who are challenged in various ways, when people treat the, the 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 young or the very old. The way they treat them, you can see who they really are by that if he asks me to give up something i enjoy doing do i think he's being mean to me if the answer to some of these questions is yes then we may need to remind ourselves of two basic truths first that whatever god asks of us is just and right because that's who he is So we can't compare ourselves to someone else. Their path is their path. And our path is our path. And whatever path God has chosen for us. Is the right one. You and I need to embrace who God's made us. We need to embrace where he's put us. And we need to do it and live it out boldly and well. And with a whole heart. And not compare ourselves. And not question those things. It eats us alive. It takes all of the energy out of us. And second we may need to remind ourselves of the terms of our original agreement as Jesus' disciples. He said to us, follow me, and we said yes. And he warned us where that path would lead, didn't he? He said, that. He said the same thing to you and me. You must take up your cross and follow me. That's, that's what, that was said to all of us. And like Peter, that morning by the lake, we may need to decide if we really meant it. How did Peter end up? Did he learn? Boy did he ever? If you read those, those letters he wrote from Rome there just before he, he died, he talks about there's a fiery trial among you. and he talks about all of this, and first and and Peter is all about suffering. And he says, if God has, he says judgment begins with the household of God, and, and then he makes this statement I just penciled it in. He says, therefore those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls, listen, to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Oh yeah, he so learned his lesson. He became the best. Lord, as we stand there with Peter and John by the lake and we See, you turn to us and say, what I will do with that other person is what I will do with that other person. You follow me. Our answer to you is yes, sir. We will follow. We will follow. And you have, you have every right to guide us and put us on a hard course, if you wish. We are your servants. You have every right to ask us to, to serve you in any way you wish. We've been made for you and designed for you and equipped for you. You're the Lord, we are not. And this day, Father, where, 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 where we become doubtful of your justice, of your fairness, of your kindness, of your goodness, where we've questioned you and challenged you and become bitter, we bring that, we give that, Lord, and ask you to, we nail it to the cross. We ask that you forgive us and wash us clean. And we would go forward from this day forward, Lord. We, we choose to live boldly and joyfully, to embrace the life. and be grateful for the days we have, to live them out boldly and serve you with all that's in us. We belong to you. We belong to you. We bring that to this table today and say thank you for your cross. Thank you for your cross. We pick up ours and follow after. In Jesus' powerful name. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.